Henry David Thoreau once described himself in a single sentence as a schoolmaster, a private tutor, a surveyor, a gardener, a farmer, a painter, I mean a house painter, a carpenter, a mason, a day laborer, a pencil maker, a glass paper maker, a writer, and sometimes a poetaster. Nicknamed the Judge by buddies and fellow transcendentalists Bronson Alcott and Ralph Waldo Emerson, Thoreau was known for his commitment to higher ideals, patient determination, faith in nature, and love of solitude. Born David Henry to John and Cynthia Thoreau on July 12, 1817, little David Henry was named after a recently deceased uncle and went by Henry. He never legally changed his name to reflect his first and middle name switcheroo, but he also didn't live in a techno-bureaucratic era spending his life going, it's Henry, when people walked out of doctor's office doorways asking for David Thoreau. His father, John, was a quote-unquote businessman who happened to not be very good at business dealings. After signing off the family's Boston home to pay off creditors, he also had to give up the family's Virginia Road farm to settle a deceased family member's estate. John tried his best at entrepreneurial enterprising again by opening a grocery store which failed two years later because he extended credit to any customer who asked for it. Cynthia's brother Charles Dunbar was an outlandish single fellow who suffered from narcolepsy. His brash charm came from his wrestling abilities, feats of physical strength, and flashy card tricks. Charles was a vagabond whose wanderings brought him to a graphite deposit in New Hampshire, which he bought with a friend. Thanks to an embargo from the United States War of 1812 with England, the graphite economy was booming. Charles was even more haphazard of a businessman than Thoreau's father, John, who assumed control of the business and finally made a prudent decision to manufacture pencils. Like his uncle Charles, Henry suffered from bouts of narcolepsy in his teen years. Called somnambulism during the early 19th century, the National Sleep Foundation describes narcolepsy today as a sleep disorder characterized by excessive sleepiness, sleep paralysis, hallucinations, and in some cases, episodes of cataplexy, which is partial or total loss of muscle control, often triggered by strong emotions such as laughter. Thoreau said the spells came about primarily when he read a which makes sense because that's pretty much all he did. He once described being somnambulic, at least stirring in my sleep, indeed quite awake. Perhaps he was somnambulic when he wrote that because it makes just about no sense. The term somnambulism was popularized by Franz Anton Mesmer, who we discussed in episode 9. Mesmer invented an alternative medical practice called animal magnetism, popularized in the early and mid-1800s. Today, it is known as hypnotism. In Natick, Massachusetts, after an animal magnetism session, a woman was suddenly able to recall an unsolved murder from five years before and the location of the body in a pond. Was it true? I have no idea. But the information was brought on by the same somnambulic state Thoreau described. Thoreau should be thought of as a man with his nose in books more than as one pinning them. From his early years attending the Concord Academy with his brother John, his education had a distinctly distant quality, especially toward the newly colonized American lands. The Harvard-educated schoolmaster taught Henry and John everything and everyone from Sophocles, Euripides, and Homer in Greek, Virgil, Cicero, and Caesar in Latin, and Voltaire, Molière, and Racine in French. 
Subjects like botany, history, geography, and natural history were only about Western Europe, and the students were posed with questions such as, have the Crusades been a benefit to the Christian nations of Europe? Was the French Revolution a benefit to Europe? And has Italy produced as great a man as Greece? When Henry David Thoreau finished his preparatory education at the Concord Academy, he went on to become a Harvard man himself. There, he continued learning the works of the ancients, dipping his toe into the medieval English channel for his fair share of epic poetry. He was captivated with Chaucer's Knights of the Round Table and detailed astrolabe practices. An astrolabe is a device formerly used to measure and identify the cosmos, including constellations, and Thoreau was infatuated with the idea of its application, though he did not use one himself as best I can tell. Thoreau's own journal even shows his preoccupation with the cosmos as he described himself as pliant and says his courses seem not so easy to be calculated as Inca's comet. Henry David Thoreau met another man that demanded to go by his full name by the public, Ralph Waldo Emerson, after a friend set them up to be intellectual buddies. Emerson had created America's first intellectual movement known as Transcendentalism, and his essays, Nature and the Oversoul, were its manifestos. Western philosophy can be divided into two very large categories of thought, idealism and materialism. The distinction between idealism and materialism lies in the answer to these two questions. What are the components of reality? And how does reality originate? Materialists think of matter as being primary and a person's spirit slash soul or mind slash ideas as secondary because they are the result of matter acting upon matter. To put it simply, idealists think the opposite. René Descartes was the first materialist, best known for his phrase, I think, therefore I am, or cogito ergo sum. His philosophy was an architecture of doubt. Psychiatrist Raj Persaud explained that I think therefore I am meant that if one is skeptical of existence, that is in and of itself proof he does exist. In contrast, German philosopher Immanuel Kant's idealism refuted the rationalism of the time, that knowledge was attainable by reason alone a priori, or prior to experience. Similarly, it refuted empiricism, that knowledge was attainable only through the senses a posteriori, or after experience. Kant argued that things can exist other than as sensations and ideas in our mind, and said that there is no such thing as pure reason. American transcendentalism was an amalgam of this idealism, industrial-era romanticism, and the Enlightenment. The transcendentalists and romantics were cousins of thought. In each movement, fate was not an abstract concept of inevitability, but the plural personification of the three goddesses Atropos, Clothos, and Lachesis, who determine the course of human life in classical Greek mythology. Nature, embodied by the satyr Pan, was as destructive as it was constructive. Thoreau was especially drawn to John Milton's humanistic conceptualization of Satan and Paradise Lost because of its rejection of the material world in favor of a dark and mysterious spirituality. Shakespearean revival was in vogue at the time, especially A Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest. Fairy ballets like Giselle and La Cifilde were in a near-constant rotation on stages worldwide. 
Romantic painters reimagined other works in the fairy aesthetic of red hair, flowers, wild nature, pale skin, and a dewy glow, like Sir John Everett Melias's near-ubiquitous Ophelia. An engraving of David Scott's painting Puck Fleeing from the Dawn hung in Ralph Waldo Emerson's own home. Want to see images of these paintings and other things I'm discussing today? Go to sifthepodcast.com to check it out. Calls for democracy, freedom of speech, natural history, and a conceptualization of societies in lieu of formal institutions like universities where values spawned from the Enlightenment era and borrowed by the transcendentalists. Ralph Waldo Emerson gathered a select few literati to form the Transcendental Club, which promoted the rejuvenation of American life and letters. These stargazers, activists, and divinity students were quick to shun reform and created a journal known as The Dial, conceived of by Ralph Waldo Emerson and edited by Margaret Fuller. The Transcendentalists ordained that people would only atone and reconcile spirit and matter individually, not together. True to form, the day The Dial's first issue was published on July 1, 1840, the Transcendental Club dissipated. To Thoreau, the judge, this individualism was part of the solitude he adored. You shall observe what occurs in your latitude, I in mine. Obviously, when Reverend Ripley began his transcendentalist attempt at a commune called Brook Farm to rejuvenate people and land through reform farming and landholding practices, Thoreau declined the invitation, electing to instead oscillate between Harvard off-campus housing and Emerson's estate for several years. In 1837, Henry began teaching at the Center Grammar School in Concord. An economic depression had hit the United States, so the schoolmaster's salary was lucrative to Thoreau. Not long into his tenure, the other instructors reprimanded Thoreau for not disciplining his students. He immediately walked into his classroom, called students at random, caned them, and walked out of the institution for good. With Emerson's influence behind him, Thoreau was able to get another job teaching at his alma mater, the Concord Academy, almost immediately despite his outburst. Within months, he recruited his brother John, and they were teaching an alternative curriculum, which included nature walks and visits to local shops. One has to wonder if they were just running errands with a gaggle of children behind them. In the fall of 1837, Henry became the secretary and curator of the Concord Lyceum, a local hall for scholarly lectures ranging from witchcraft and fairies to mesmerism to Thoreau's first address titled Society in 1838. In it, the judge reasserts his individualistic ideals, stating, "...that which constitutes the life of every man is a profound secret." Likely inspired by the epic poetic tales of voyages and heroes from the days of their classical education, brothers John and Henry took a trip down the Merrimack and Concord Rivers in the fall of 1839. They built the boat they would sail in the week preceding the voyage by hand. The boat's body was painted green with blue borders to mimic the two elements in which it was to spend its existence. It had two oars, a sail, two masts, and was christened with the name Mosquitoquid. This experience brought Henry closer to his brother John and his conceptualization of self-reliant nature, especially through exoticization of rivers like the Nile, the Ganges, even the Mississippi masquerading as Romantic Adder. 
July of 1840, the same month the first issue of The Dial was released, Henry Thoreau proposed marriage to the only woman he would openly declare love towards. He met Ellen Sewell years before during her two-week visit to Concord. She was 17, he was 21, and in those two weeks they saw a giraffe and went on countless walks together. Henry's stoicism appeared to be shed in a poem he wrote the day he met Ellen. Come, let's roam the breezy pastures, here the freest zephyrs blow, like two careless swifts let's sail. On Situate Beach in 1840, Henry's brother John Thoreau first proposed to Ellen Sewell, who refused him. When Henry asked Ellen to marry him, she went to her father, who refused to grant her permission. She confided in her Aunt Prudence, I could not bear to think that both these friends, whom I have enjoyed so much with, would now no longer be able to have the free, pleasant intercourse with us as formerly. Yeah, nice guys getting angry about being quote-unquote friend-zoned, existed since at least the 19th century. Henry Thoreau went on to show romantic interest only in older or married women who were unavailable, and on his deathbed he said, I have always loved her, in reference to Ellen Sewell. On January 1st, 1842, John Thoreau was sharpening his street razor on a strip of leather when he cut the tip of his finger. He thought nothing of it as he wrapped it with a rag to stop the bleeding. Eight days later, the skin had mortified, and the next morning he awoke to his jaw stiffening. By that same evening, he lay in bed with convulsions. He had fallen ill with tetanus, or lockjaw. Henry came to care for his brother, who died in his arms 36 hours later. By the end of the month, Ralph Waldo Emerson's five-year-old son, Waldo, developed scarlet fever and died. Henry Thoreau was crushed by the death of his brother and little Waldo. Thoreau frequently assumed the role of family patriarch when Emerson went out of town, and in his duties, he painted the house, grafted trees with fruiting limbs, and built toys and read books with the Emerson children. Henry Thoreau's generation was shedding some of the fatalism of their forefathers, who had survived the self-imposed witch trials and their attempts to exterminate Native Americans. But the deaths of John and Waldo had stunned Thoreau's sense of optimism. No longer did he obey Emerson's motto of trust thyself when Thoreau sent a letter describing his suffering. When we look over the fields, we are not saddened because the particular flowers or grasses will wither, for the law of their death is the law of the new life. While on a rowboat excursion in 1844, Thoreau truly discovered the Phoenician truth of humanity's effects upon plants when a fire he made to heat some fish chowder got out of control and he burnt down 300 acres of woodland. You heard me correctly. He burnt down 300 acres of forest. I wonder if he decided to adopt the satyr Pan for his generative and destructive qualities before or after this incident. The next spring, Ellery Channing morbidly advised Thoreau to build yourself a hut, and there began the grand process of devouring yourself alive. I see no other alternative, no other hope for you. Thoreau began building his little hut on borrowed land from Ralph Waldo Emerson, located beside Walden Pond on April Fool's Day that year. He viewed the two years spent in the small house as an experiment. The home was built with help from others who did not live there and cost Thoreau less than a year's rent at Harvard College. While living at Walden Pond, Thoreau edited A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, a travel journal about the time he and his brother John spent together on their sailing trip, and he processed much of his grief. 
Thoreau's cabin was placed on the other side of Walden Pond from an abandoned village. During the colonial era, the village was called Whipsupaniki by Algonquin-speaking Native Americans, meaning place of sudden death because of the plagues brought to the land by English settlers. Only 50 Pawtucket people survived in 1674 due to disease. After the disease, King Philip's War broke out. It was the single biggest calamity to occur in 17th century colonial America, and any place where Anglo-Saxons and Native Americans encountered each other, violence broke out. A Massachusetts general court ordered the internment of all Native people in August of 1675, and any Native Americans not interned were ordered to be shot on sight before the men were sold into slavery. Henry Thoreau's experiment across Walden Pond from that abandoned village ended on September 6, 1847, and Thoreau declared that he had several more lives to live. Returning to what he described as the quiet desperation of the city, Thoreau continued his daily practice of walking, once a necessity while living at Walden to obtain daily supplies. He despised factory production, played the flute, and practiced yoga. His travels were limited to his books, and when he did leave the country, he said, what I got from Canada was a cold. At the urging of Ralph Waldo Emerson, he kept a journal. The entries range from staccato observations, we have a saying in the East Quarter bargain, i.e. a secret run, the copper mines, the old silver one now deserted, the Holt, to dated and organized thoughts. My journal should be a record of my love. I would write in it only the things I love, my affection for any aspect of the world, what I love to think. Most of Thoreau's volumes of writing amount to his journals, 14 in total. The rest are his novels, Walden and A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, and collections of essays edited from speeches delivered at the Concord Lyceum. His most famous speech? Civil Disobedience. One day in July, the town constable, Sam Staples, demanded that Henry Thoreau pay his delinquent poll tax, and Thoreau refused. He was promptly booked in the local jail. Both his bail and taxes were paid the next morning by an unnamed individual, likely his Aunt Maria, but he had to be forcibly removed from his jail cell in a second act of disobedience. Emerson had previously forged the way to inspire Thoreau's passive resistance to the state by tax evasion in his 1845 essay titled Politics, wherein Emerson tells readers to give up government without too solicitously inquiring whether roads can be built, letters carried, and title deeds secured when the government of force is at end. These events inspired a speech Thoreau would deliver two years later at the Concord Lyceum to be edited into an essay now known known as civil disobedience. In it, Thoreau, the judge, declares that government is best which governs least before espousing his principles of libertarian self-reliance and creative protest. A week after Thoreau's few hours in jail, the Anti-Slavery Society of Concord held its annual meeting on the steps of his cabin. The judge was immediately lionized in the former Massachusetts colony. During his hours-long incarceration, Thoreau described himself to his jailer as the humblest, cheapest, least dignified man in the village. Just as Henry David Thoreau began reciting different iterations of what would eventually become civil disobedience at the Concord Lyceum, the federal government passed the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850. The act was designed to help Southern slave owners recapture escaped slaves with the help of federal marshals. The penalty for noncompliance with the act was $1,000, which is worth about $30,000 today, and a bounty system was enacted for federal commissioners who decided the status of 
suspected fugitives. Commissioners, which are judicial officers like judges, were paid $10 if they found in favor of the slave owner, and $5 if they found in favor of the fugitive slave. In the decade from 1850 to 1860, 332 black people were sent into southern slavery, and 11 were declared free. You either do or do not know that Henry Thoreau was an abolitionist, and his adherence to nonviolent principles went flying out the window the moment John Brown raided Harper's Ferry on October 16, 1859. John Brown was a dedicated Calvinist and abolitionist who decided it was time for a violent slave revolt. He approached Frederick Douglass, a black intellectual and abolitionist, to get him to join in his crusade. Douglass's response? Hell no! or more specifically, that the attack would array the entire country against us. And he warned that Brown would never get out alive. Brown was not swayed, and he continued to evangelize his plan to raid a military armory. In fact, at least 80 people knew about his plans in advance, including two U.S. senators, a Quaker named David J. Gu, who sent a letter warning the Secretary of War of the raid, and President Buchanan, who set a bounty at $250 for Brown's head. When John Brown raided Harper's Ferry, he and his men took hostages, stopped a train, shot a black man named Hayward Shepard, who was the train's baggage handler, let the train go on to warn authorities, and managed to seize the armory. There was one problem, though. No one had let the slaves in town know that these nice abolitionists were trying to help liberate them by stealing guns on their behalf, so enslaved folks didn't show up. You know who did show up? White folks. Angry white folks. Farmers, shopkeepers, army workers, and militiamen surrounded Harper's Ferry until Brown's men were picked off one by one, and Brown surrendered. When Henry David Thoreau heard of what John Brown had done, he thought, I should angrily journal about my fellow inferior craven-hearted townspeople for a couple of days, and then deliver a speech to them. And you bet your candy asses that's what he did. On October 30th, 1859, Henry David Thoreau delivered his plea for Captain John Brown, whose fate at the gallows was sealed by then. And so Thoreau pled for his character, his immortal life. The speech did not place John Brown on a pedestal, but a crucifix. A man such as the sun may not rise upon again in this benighted land, to whose making went the costliest material, the finest adamant sent to be the redeemer of those in captivity, and only the use to which you can put him is to hang him at the end of a rope? You who pretend to care for Christ crucified, consider what you are about to do to him who offered himself to be the savior of four millions of men. In this allegorical America, John Brown is Christ on trial by Pontius Pilate, who refuses to take responsibility for the blood of Christ on his hands as the crowds chant for his death. While the judge Thoreau does not openly admit it, in his travels delivering the speech in Concord, Boston, and Worcester, Massachusetts crowds, he assumes the role of evangelical disciple. The day of Brown's execution, 
Thoreau demanded the town bells he loved to hear so much toll, which the selectmen refused to do, and the local transcendentalists arranged a service. An effigy of John Brown was tied to a tree, with a will attached that stated, I bequeath to H.G. Thoreau, Esquire, my body and soul, he having eulogized my character and actions at Harper's Ferry above the saints in heaven. The Union essentially canonized John Brown, not enslaved people or even other well-known black abolitionist Frederick Douglass. He was the white savior they needed in just the nick of time. A wartime song called John Brown's Body was sung by Union soldiers in battle against Confederates, and it has been adapted by Pete Seeger and other musicians over the years. He captured Harper's Ferry with his 19 men so true. He frightened old Virginia till she trembled through and through. They hanged him for a traitor, they themselves the traitor crew. His soul goes marching on. Henry David Thoreau contracted tuberculosis in 1835 at the age of 18 and suffered from occasional bouts of the illness after its contraction. In 1861, after a late-night winter walk to count some tree rings, he contracted bronchitis and quickly realized that the illness would be terminal. He used that time to edit his speeches into essays and his volumes of journals into cohesion. Henry David Thoreau died on May 6, 1862, at the age of 44. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote his obituary remembering that Thoreau could throw a poetic veil over his experience, but also bringing up an old battle between the friends, saying, With his energy and practical ability, he seemed born for great enterprise and for command. So much regret the loss of his rare powers of action that I cannot help counting it a fault in his that he had no ambition. Wanting this, instead of engineering for all America, he was the captain of a Huckleberry party. It seems that, in his end, the judge was judged for amounting to not all that much. After Henry David Thoreau's funeral, 44 bell tolls rang over the town of Concord for each year of his life. Henry David Thoreau was devout in his solitude, committed to a handful of other intellectuals, judgmental of all aspects of the world, and self-denying of many of life's pleasures. He once said, God is alone, but the devil, he is far from being alone. He sees a great deal of company. He is legion. Thoreau was thoroughly alone, and one great man named Ralph Waldo Emerson made sure that he was not forgotten. The devil is in the details, yes. That's how he ends up everywhere. But what about a mediocre hermit of a man that we allow to become immortal? Is there not a devil in that? Sif the Podcast is produced by Bill Cotter and me. You can find today's sources on our website, sifthepodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and remember, idle ears are the devil's playthings.